So we're on page 158 and we're continuing by describing the mitzvah. So before we had said that Rav Hirsch, as opposed to the Rambam, said that every detail is pertinent in the overall picture of what we're trying to learn and what we're trying to gain from doing the mitzvah as opposed to the Rambam, who felt that the main thrust is, the, is what we can try to figure out what Hashem's reason was. And in terms of the details, sometimes the details, it's just a detail and it could be for a reason that will no longer even apply or you know something along those lines. Not to say that you can change anything, God forbid, but that you don't have to use every detail to derive the reasoning behind the mitzvah. Whereas the verse says that it's all part of one idea. And if it doesn't, if your reasoning does not fit every single detail, you got to throw it out and start all over again. It should be noted in this context that Rabbi Shamshan Rafael Hirsch mentions various ways of grouping mitzvos, but he never makes a distinction between sikhlios and shmios, rational and revealed laws. One reason is that this kind of division inspired the labeling of the latter group as purely ceremonial rituals. Right? Revealed, by the way, to be clear, what revealed means. Revealed means a, a law that is revealed to us, but we never would have come up with our, on, on our own, and we have no understanding of why that law applies. Now, when you engage in that categorization of saying that there's this type of mitzvah is rational, this type of mitzvah is not rational, what ends up happening is you leave people thinking that this is a ceremonial ritual, right? And that's a problem, because if it's a ceremonial ritual and the reason for the ceremony no longer applies, you don't do it anymore. But another reason is that even the mitzvahs in the former group have some halachic provisions that cannot have been deduced by human reason alone, so that the entire division is ultimately untenable once we take the details of mitzvahs into account. Okay, so what he's saying this is like this. He's saying that even within the mitzvahs that we think of as being the, let's say, the sikhliot, which means the ones that we can arrive at by a rational analysis, right? For example, the Gemara itself tells us that there are certain mitzvahs that had Hashem not given them to us, we could have derived them from the natural world. Right? For example, we could have learned how to be sniyot, how to be modest in our behavior from the cat, because the cat is very modest in its behavior. And the Gemara goes through many of the natural animals that we could have been able to learn, derive these laws from. It doesn't mean that we actually would have looked at the cat and said, oh, we should be sniyot too. But what it, it's a way of teaching us that there are things that we can actually figure out on our own, on a port purely instinctual level, the same way animals have come up with these types of ideas on an instinctual level. So that's true. However, it's important to recognize that even those rational mitzvot that are purely sikhliot, that are purely rational, purely logical, that's not really true because they inevitably have certain details that are not based on logic at all. And if we thought that we were basing things off of logic, we would have jettisoned these points. Now, he then describes, we're up to footnote number five. So just to go back for a moment and look at what footnote number five is on. This is an incredibly long um, footnote for, the, uh, for this entire chapter. So what he's discussing is every detail and every point find corroboration in the Talmud when we're trying to figure out the Ta'ameha Mitzvot. If only we seek to grasp their basic meaning, asking at every step, what have I heard here? What is the essential meaning of this particular thing? What is its purpose? What symbolic act was ordained for it? And what is its underlying significance? Okay, in terms of symbolic act, one way of understanding the significance of the mitzvot is to explore their impact on the universe and how they trigger a divine response to our earthly actions. This is essentially the approach of Kabbalah and of those who have drawn from it. 
notably in the Hasidic world, but also outside it. See Nefesh HaChayim of Rabbi Chaim of Olajan. We mentioned Nefesh HaChayim previously. It was a theoretical, uh, one of the options for what we would study next after Masilat Yasharim. Nefesh HaChayim is fascinating because the Rabbi Chaim of Olajan, who was the preeminent disciple of the Vilna Gayan. The Vilna Gayan, as we know, was the leader of the Misnagdim, of the people who held themselves opposite towards the Hasidim when the Hasidic movement was at its uh, uh, nascent self, right? And what happened is the Rebchaim Velashen, who was certainly a Litvak, right? A completely a Litvish person in every, every way, shape, and form, wrote a book called Nefesh HaChaim. And in this book, which purports to be a very different from the Baal HaTanya, right? The Baal HaTanya is the first Lubavitcher Rebbe who writes a handbook of Hasidic thought and perhaps the preeminent handbook of Hasidic thought. I think even today, many would make, say that. So in that book, they actually come up, both of them, one coming from at the angle from a Hasidic angle, one coming at it from a Litvish angle. They come up with many of the same exact ideas, just expressed a little bit differently. Many have noted this. This is not my my novel thought, right? This is something that many people have noted over the years. So the idea of exploring the impact of the mitzvot on the universe and how there is a divine response to our earthly actions, Kabbalah, the Hasidic world, also outside of it. And the reason why really has to do like this. We don't necessarily think of the Vilna Goyen of having been someone who was heavily influenced by Kabbalah. But in fact, the Vilna Goyen, Rabbi Elijah Kramer, was heavily influenced by Kabbalah. And therefore it makes a lot of sense, uh, he being in a devotee of Kabbalah, and maybe that's not the right word, but he being a, a avid student of Kabbalah, his primary student would certainly follow in his footsteps, right? So if you have someone who, I am a completely rational Jew and I don't believe in Kabbalah, right? Whether or not that's heresy, we, we could discuss a different time. But if someone has that attitude, then they're gonna find themselves very, very far removed from Hasidic tradition. But if someone is a Kabbalist and, and a very well-grounded Kabbalist with a tremendous knowledge of Kabbalah, then there will be a lot of overlap between them and the Hasidic philosophy, okay? And that is indeed what we find. On the other hand, and without negating the validity of the Kabbalistic approach that has been described, others have stressed the impact of the mitzvot on the individual himself and on his earthly environment. This, as we have pointed out, is the approach of Rabbi Shamshin of Paul Hirsch. The impact can be achieved in various ways. The lesson can be taught by the precept itself, not mistreating the widow or the orphan. It can be spelled out in the precept, the obligation to remember the exodus from Egypt, or it can be conveyed through a symbolic action, shaking the lulav. Parenthetically, I just want to give a shout out to, to Jonathan because he texted, I, I don't know, if, I think you might all actually be on that chat because he posted on that chat a little bit earlier where, why isn't Rev Hirsch talking about the, uh, the mystical aspects of the mitzvot, right? So either he wrote this next footnote or he already read ahead. Uh, but I don't think either of them are true. So, so you get a shout out for that. In letter 13, Rabbi Shabshan Rafael Hirsch explains the way in which this last group of commandments exercises a profound effect upon us. The actions that uh, the, can be conveyed through a symbolic action, that last group of commandments exercises a profound effect. Yet these mitzvot in particular have come under attack from the opponents of Torah observance. While these opponents may countenance ethical or philosophical precepts, they label all the others ceremonial laws, a formalistic outer shell which could be discarded at will as long as the inward 
frame of mind and the right Justin Lund, I guess, spirit was kept intact. This view is, of course, based on a denial of the divine origin of the mitzvahs. Okay, so he's going to now explain, though, obviously, how these precepts are exactly what they are and how they are, they are completely inviolable and they cannot be changed based on anybody's, uh, based on anybody's uh, you know, standard or the progressive mindset that will apply at any given time, they're not going to be able to be changed. Okay, so we're going to stop over here.